Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome once again to On Mike with Jordan Rich. I would be he. This is the podcast that celebrates conversation with so many creative people who have so much to say. And today, a woman whose voice is as sweet as her personality, and she's tackling a difficult subject in a sensitive and poetic way. She's Barbara Becker. She's written a book called Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. The big question is, can and should we live our lives more fully, knowing someday we will pass on, we will die? The book is by no means a downer, and I guarantee you a stimulating podcast conversation with a very thoughtful, kind, and feeling guest. So let's welcome her, Barbara Becker, author of Heartwood, as she joins us now on Mike. I'd like to begin with uh, a pretty obvious question, the definition of Heartwood, because it's very important to the story, to the book, to the uh, philosophy. What is Heartwood? Let's start with that, Barbara. Heartwood is the inner core of trees. It's the durable part that's most prized by woodworkers for its strength. But uh, what most people don't realize is that heartwood is inert. It's actually dead. So for the growth rings to continue to grow around the heartwood, it needs that strength in what has come before. And when my parents died, I was searching around for some way to make meaning out of loss. And I discovered heartwood in an old growth forest. Perfect metaphor for what we're going to be talking about. And it's poetic as as it is meaningful. So we'll, we'll get into it in much more detail. This is something that uh, we all have to deal with or should deal with or might want to focus on dealing with at some point because the one thing we all have in common is we are mortal. When was it first upon you this idea that I have to deal with how we end our lives and how life cycles continue? When did this happen? My earliest childhood friend, Marissa, was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer when she was just 30. You know, we were going on living our lives and, you know, everything seemed like all the hope was ahead of us. But Marissa was given this diagnosis. And when she had just one year left to live, I saw that she was living life so beautifully, so in the present moment. Um, She went ahead and she married her college sweetheart. She took a trip to Italy, which was her family's ancestral homeland. I mean, she really wanted to suck the juice out of life. You know, in the meantime, I was profoundly uh, disturbed. I was waking up every night wondering about Marissa's final days, worrying about my parents, who I suddenly realized had probably lived more of their lives than they had remaining. I was worried about my children. What would it be like to lose a child? Uh, I was worried about my own mortality. Mm. And I did what um, I, I frequently do when I come up against a big question. 
which is I turned to books, to literature, to see what wise people before us had to say about living with our mortality. And it turns out that sages and saints and wise folks throughout the ages have advised us to live with the end in mind as a way of living our lives more richly. I mean, we see this in the life of the Buddha. We see it in the Judeo-Christian tradition. We, we see it in the works of the Stoic philosophers like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. And we see it in the works of our homegrown philosopher, Henry David Thoreau. Mm. Um, all of them have said, that if you want to live with the absolute richness of life, you can't deny the fact that we're mortal, that all of us are going to die. Better to face it now, they right. say. That sense of the finite, putting a, a cap, if you will, on the extent of life wakes you up to a, a lot of things. Sometimes, though, it can wake you up to more fear and more anxiety. So I think a lot of the work you're doing in Heartwood, the art of living with the end in mind, is aimed at quelling that anxiety by, in your case, investigating and learning and being curious and all that. But there is something to be said about that. Interestingly enough, my uh, encounter with this was not when I was a child in my early days or my teens, but when I was in my mid-20s. And there had been losses in the family prior to that of elderly people, but it was a, a cousin of my then wife who uh, passed away at age 40 and uh, suddenly, and it was a, a death resulting from lifestyle and diabetes and all that, but it just shocked the living you-know out of me. And it took me a long time to calm down and then start to investigate myself. So I think a lot of this happens when you lose someone around you, someone who's present, and then they're not anymore. That's exactly right. I mean, I would say that um, Henry David Thoreau, as an example, it was the death of his brother John who had cut himself while shaving. He was a young man, and he developed um, tetanus, mm. a lockjaw, and he died in Henry's arms. And that was three years before Henry David Thoreau went to Walden Pond. And, you know, he said that I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So there he was, like defining the very mission of what he was doing out there at Walden as how can I live fully in the face of the fact that I lost the most dear person in my mm. life? And he took it upon himself to share what he learned with others, hence the great literature, which impacts people to this day, you, me, and millions. In a sense, he took on a new mission, and that's part of what makes living a finite life for me and for so many uh, important and, uh, and kind of special. It's a gift if you know that you have yes. a certain amount of time. But you've uh, worked as an interfaith minister. You've also, as the book illustrates, made it your point to meet up with people who were in the throes of losing their life on this earth or knew people that were. Tell me a little bit about your adventure, I'm using quotes around that word, as a hospice volunteer. 
So after Marissa died, um, I decided I was going to have to go beyond the literature and take this on, take on death as the teacher, if you will. So I discovered that there are two Zen monks living in New York City, where I was living, and they train people to be with the dying at the bedside. And I took a course with them and became uh, an apprentice to these monks. They had me working at Bellevue Hospital on the hospice floor. And for anyone who doesn't know Bellevue, it's the busiest uh, public hospital in New York City with an incredibly diverse population of people. And every week I was there sitting with patient after patient and really, um, really seeing what death looks like face to face and becoming more comfortable, I would say, with each and every interaction. I wouldn't say they were all easy interactions and I do write about some of the difficult moments with patients, but I learned through all those years working with patients what it's like to be in the present moment. Why do you think it's so difficult for people to find the words when they're confronted with uh, either the family or the friends of those left behind or those themselves who are going? Why is it so challenging? I think we all know the underlying reason, but how do you define that reason? I think the greatest challenge is that we feel like we have to have all the answers figured out when we're talking to a person who is either dying or is losing someone um, very rapidly. And uh, the Zen teachers taught me an incredible lesson in this. Um, They said, you know, Barbara, it seems like you think you need the answer to all of these existential questions of life and death. But if you walk into the room of a hospice patient and they're watching Jeopardy, your job is to just meet them where they are and watch Jeopardy with them. And when they said that, it took off a tremendous weight. I mean, people are not looking to us for all the answers They're really looking to us to be there, to be present with every fiber of our being, to show up. That's a brilliant answer. And uh, you write about this in many instances with some of the people you counseled and and were there for. I think that's the key. You were there for them. You were a person just being in the room, being in the room, holding their hands. You do write about one or two instances that didn't go as well. And I think that's good that you did because we don't want to paint the picture that everything is rosy and and sweet and it's butterflies lifting us off to heaven. Some people were very adamant about not wanting anybody interfering. That's right. I, I had an interaction with a patient at one point and uh, I, I view it as almost a rite of passage. Uh, I was trying so desperately to help this patient. You know, I thought, oh, if I could fix that broken telephone in his room and he could have a conversation with his wife or, you know, I could crawl under the bed and fiddle with the wires. You know, I, I was doing absolutely everything to try to make it okay for this man and what he was facing. But the fact was that I couldn't. And he was furious with me. Um, You know, he at one point told me in no uncertain terms to get the heck out of his room. And Mm. I'm being polite. (laughs) Um, And and I, I got it. I understood 
that, you know, you probably can't tell your doctor off, you know, you're probably not going to tell your nurse or your social worker off. But at that point, I was a volunteer. And I was an easy target. And I get it. I get it. I couldn't fix his pain. In a way, you were you were the uh, the sob for his pain. He needed to take his anger out on somebody. It wasn't fair, but it was the right thing at the right time for him. You took it like a champ. <laughs> oh, Jordan, that's the nicest thing I've heard. <laughs> and I really appreciate that. <laughs> T- tell the story and share the story of the Caribbean and meeting Mac and who he is and, and why you included this story in the book, if you would. So my family, my husband and my two sons and I took a trip to the Caribbean. We were camping and uh, we met a man who was so joyful. I mean, he was there with his five children and they danced and they played and he he pretended he was a pirate and he included my children in all of his children's activities. Just a joy, an absolute joy to be around. Um, but he was alone. He was without a partner. And at one point, you know, we sort of inquisitively asked what was up. And he said that his wife had just died two months before this trip and that she had sailed in her lifetime and she, you know, would have loved that they spend the holidays together as a family reveling in in the joy of their time together. So he was there with his children and making the most out of a, a, a terrible situation Um, You know, I thought we might lose touch with Mac, but he is from Gloucester, Mass., and he told me to to look him up, that if I called the Chamber of Commerce, they would know exactly where to find him. So after we returned from our holiday, I sent him a note saying how much it had meant to our family to meet him. And it wasn't much longer later that I was sitting working at my desk one day And there was a ring at the door and I went to answer it. And the UPS guy had an enormous box addressed to my pirate sons. And it was from beautiful Mac from Gloucester who had everything in there, eye patches and, you know, all kinds of, you know, pirate booty. And um, Hmm. we just kept in touch with him over the years because he had so much to instruct us on living life on finding time with family, on being outdoors in nature as a priority, as a way of finding peace. Um, And to this day, we keep in touch with Mac. He's a dear friend of our families. And every time we're in the area, we visit him. And I believe since that time uh, when you first met, he has found someone else to share his life with? Yes, he has. He was building a new home and met the architect who designed his house. And what I love about that is that my my family has also had a, um, a second relationship, which has meant so much in our lives. My father had lost his first wife, and um, it, it was a tragic boating accident, actually, in which she died. And he, he met my mother several years later, but he always held the love of his first wife as well. 
So there is the possibility in loss to find life anew and love anew. And um, Mac teaches us that again and again. Well, that resonates with me uh, because I also was widowed at uh, after 31 years of marriage, and it's now 10 years. And my late wife had a sense of humor and was pretty strong-willed, as is my current wife. <clears throat> and I recall many conversations when we knew the end was near and uh, the threat, and I take I put that in quotes, that if I don't find my way and enjoy life and find love again, she'll haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> so I took that I took that as a as a direct command, and I did find uh, a relationship with somebody very special, and I think consider myself quite blessed. I think memory is a big part of this, and treasuring the memory and realizing that, I know this is going to sound corny, when people leave us, yes, they've left us physically, but they haven't left us emotionally or spiritually or mentally. We still have them in our hearts and minds. Sort of the glass half full approach is what I'm getting at. Yes. This is why the metaphor of Heartwood was so important to me. I mean, in remembering these loved ones who have gone before us, they don't leave us all together, but they stay inside of us, just like the heartwood of a tree. We continue to grow, but they are always there with us in a different form, but they are there. How has this impacted your kids? Have you, I, I, I don't know how old they are now, but have you had the chance to, in a family setting, talk about some of these things with them? Because Dealing with death when you're young and vital and you think the whole world is yours for the rest of time is pretty challenging for most parents. How did that work out? When my mother was dying, my husband and I uh, asked our children, who were teenagers at the time, if they wanted to be present uh, for her death. We knew that it was just a matter of a few days. And the kids had just seen her at Thanksgiving where she was doing pretty well. Now, it would have been an easy way to transition them, perhaps, um, not seeing the difficulty and the struggle of the final days and hours. But both children decided that they wanted to be there with her. And they said afterwards that we had talked so much about death in our family, never tried to brush it under the rug, um, that they knew it was going to be hard, but they wanted to be there for Nana. And uh, they both uh, really are not that intimidated by talking about death. And I, I give them a lot of credit. They both have friends who have lost grandparents at this point, and they will be the kids who will call up their friends and mm. ask them how they're doing and even ask what the end was like. Things that mm. young people don't ask other young people. They're sort of afraid to do that, um, as as we all are, in fact. I kind of wish before I was 25 or 26, I had some of that experience. You know, I, like so many people in this culture, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to go near it. We don't like the idea of funerals. We don't want to go near a, a cemetery. We just don't want to be there. Not that we want to be there and make it a habit, but being exposed to it makes a difference. And let's talk about the the end of life. I consider it a transition. There's so much, I'm going to use the word grace, when you see someone and are with someone, someone you know and love, or particularly, who passes on, who moves through this life into the next. What's that like for you? What does that uh, feel like when you're in that presence? 
Well, I can tell you a story about that. Um, I, you know, I was working on the floor at Bellevue one day. It was a cold, freezing cold morning. And um, I was walking around the floor without the census, which is the list of people who uh, are in each room and the cause of their illness. So I was kind of going blind. I, I didn't know who I was going to encounter in each room. And I found a woman who um, I was sitting with and it, she was just so um, like graceful in her non-responsiveness. I mean, she was breathing softly and she just wasn't able to communicate, but there was something about her where I wanted to spend more time with her. And when they finally printed out the list of names of patients, I looked at who she was and it turns out that I knew her. Mm. She was somebody who worked in my husband's office and there was such a grace in being with her at that moment. I followed her breath. I sort of naturally started following her in-breath and her out-breath. I, I hummed a little bit to her, and I, I put my hand under hers so she could move her hand if she didn't feel comfortable with that. And she took a deep breath in and a deep breath out, and that was the end she just died right there. Like, what are the chances? Sometimes the synchronicities around death are unbelievable. People either wait to have loved ones with them, or sometimes they wait until the loved one has walked out of the room, yes. I think trying to spare them some kind of pain. But there's so many moments of just exquisite grace in the end. It also it sort of reassures me, just my opinion, my thought, that you have, as an individual human, some sense of control over the end. In other words, that doesn't always happen. People die in accidents, as your your dad knew so, so coldly about his first wife. But people often in the late stages of life or late stages of disease sort of have that last decision to make when and how, and they, they often do it. Not always, but often. It's kind of interesting. It is interesting. I mean, we're often told when we do hospice work that the last sense to go is hearing. So I always treat people as if they are fully present in the room, because I actually think on some level they are. Uh, I've been in rooms where where unfortunately families are talking about um, who's going to get what in the will and the person hasn't even died. And I think it's really important to be mindful of this fact that the person can probably most likely still hear you. Absolutely believe you're correct. And uh, I've seen it with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears, that connection that is uh, possible. So let's just sort of wrap up here and suggest that you've taken the philosophy of hundreds of years, rolled it up into something kind of special because it's so readable, it's so understandable. You feel you've accomplished a mission here with uh, Heartwood, the book? I have been so thrilled by the response to this book. And, and what I love is that I get letters from people who are dying and people who have lost someone, but I also get letters from people who say, 
Yeah, it's really resonated with the breakup of my marriage and divorce or being an empty nester when my children have gone off to school or the things I lost in a house fire. Um, we have losses all the time and how we learn to say goodbye in our day-to-day -day lives, even if it's just turning around and getting off the gadget and, and wishing somebody in your home a great day. All of these things add up and teach us the lessons of impermanence, of the yeah. fact that everything changes. Well, we're social animals, and it means so much when you're knowing you're not alone. And that's certainly the thing about death, uh, the great equalizer. We're all going to face it. But knowing you're not alone and people care and people will remember is a beautiful message. Subtitle of the book is The Art of Living with the end in mind. Uh, I'm not thinking about the end every second, but I'm certainly appreciating my life every moment when I uh, think of the words you wrote down in this book. So thank you so much, Barbara. Let's talk about your website, which is? It's barbarabecker.com. It's amazing how many websites are simply the names of the beautiful people I interview. barbarabecker.com, the book, Heartwood, available everywhere. Thank you so much, and uh, God bless you and your family. Thank you, Jordan, you as well. Barbara Becker's book is called Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. As one fellow author said, precious stories that have the power to move your heart. And I would certainly agree. Thank you so much for subscribing and downloading this very podcast. Your reviews and ratings are also very much appreciated. Go to jordanrich.com. You can connect with me that way. And until we meet again, which will be very soon, remember to always be well so you can do good. Take care. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.